claiming that the commander-in-chief is unfit to serve. Not in his right mind. Insane. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. There's a question about the president's temperament, that he has serious questions about his mental acuity. This is 25th Amendment kind of stuff. This is, I mean, did anybody the say the that in there, the West Wing to you? All the time. If we do have a president who has some fitness issues, even though he says he's like really smart. Calling himself a very stable genius. What the hell is happening? This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. <laughs> what the hell is going on, Heather? <laughs> I love that last comment. Damn it, Heather. Help us. Give us history, Heather. What the hell is going on? Have we any historical precedent for where we stand now? I mean, do you personally have a precedent for what you're feeling at this moment? No, we're in uncharted territory. Okay, that's right. Off the map. Off the map. Ah, uh, there be demons there. Where there be demons, yeah, that's right. There monsters. Be yep. There are monsters there. So, so, look, we are going to talk about... Well, stable geniuses and unstable ones. I consider you a very stable genius. Oh, about... and there's two of us in this room, Ron. Oh, well, yeah, they're <laughs> really. I mean, you shouldn't have. Um, but, but uh, you know, I just uh, I just keep thinking of the phrase, a reality show. Because people say again and again, this phrase just rolls off the tongue. Donald Trump's running a reality show here in the West Wing and uh, throughout the nation. And the ratings are off the charts. I mean, you love him or you hate him. Everyone's watching, everyone around the world. But those two words, reality and show, are tricky little words. Break them apart. I mean, because what you have is the show. We know the show. The show seems to be of an insane man. But the big change with the arrival of Michael Wolf's, you know, uneven, though certainly unstoppable book, The Fire and the Fury, on the New York Times bestseller list, number one, is that it's giving us a glimpse of the underlying reality from people around Trump who up to now have not spoken, led by Steve Bannon. But others, of course, populate the book. And they're saying the same thing on the inside as people are saying on the outside. And that's why we're having this discussion. They have that glimpse. We only care about these aides because they're close to the decider. And through their eyes, we get to see something that we wouldn't otherwise see out in the wild hurly-burly. And they're concerned again and again. You just heard Wolf say it on that tape. It's 25th Amendment talk in the White Building. And that's why today we will talk about Compass Mentis and the duly elected orange one. Well, one of the things that it seems to me so important about this moment is while all those things are true, it's being spun from Trump supporters as being a partisan attack. And I want to really emphasize that my take on this is not a partisan take on this. I think if you look at the president that we have right now, he is behaving in ways that if you saw them in a relative, in your dad, your grandpa, you would want a full neurological evaluation and you certainly would not give him the car keys. And I'm not meaning that in a, in a sort of derogatory way, you would be very concerned for the trouble that he could get himself or other people into. And when you think about that situation and then think, oh, by the way, he's got the nuclear codes, you got to say, this is not a time for partisanship. This is a time to say, all the people who are quietly saying this behind the scenes should be saying it in public and should be returning us to some kind of politics that maybe I don't personally like but that at least gets us out of the territory of having a person of really questionable mental acuity in charge of the potential to destroy the world. I, I like you talking about Uncle Herbert and what he's doing at Thanksgiving because the, the standard, after all, is 
harm to himself and others. Now, at this point, the others are much of the world as he plays games of chicken with a madman from North Korea. So, look, let us bring in our expert this week. I'm very anxious to talk to this guy. He's been all over the news lately. This is kind of his moment. He's been studying this stuff for many, many years, and now he is speaking out. Julian Zelizer, professor of history, public affairs at Princeton University. His most recent book is The Fierce Urgency of Now. Nice title. Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. Julian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Now, Julian, as as a student of Issues Presidential, uh, you are here with the rest of us watching the explosion of Michael Wolff's fire and fury and the discussion. People are talking quite seriously, quite pointedly about the president's mental capacity. Do you consider this a fair and pertinent discussion? Or is it, as many folks uh, who are his supporters say, the stuff simply of partisanship? No, I think this is a fair conversation to have. I, I am someone who thinks that uh, the, the mental fitness of a president should always be fair for discussion. We'll, we we want to know how a president's mind works. But uh, the book is really secondary. Re- the, the reason the debate has emerged is everything we've seen since the campaign, uh, let alone since inauguration. The, the president's own words, his uh, statements on Twitter, his willingness to use name-calling and all kinds of provocative language against adversaries abroad and adversaries of home have raised the question many times. And it's not, as Heather said, a partisan issue. You've heard Republicans, such as uh, Senator Corker, make statements about uh, how he handles this job in terms of his mental capacity. So uh, the fact that- Lindsey Graham said during the campaign he's crazy, and then it took it back. Absolutely. And and the president kind of willingly engages this side of his personality. Uh, we don't know if it's all put together as some kind of political show or this is him front and center in, in front of our eyes. This is how he acts. Uh, but I think after this record, it's not a wonder people are asking. And it's legitimate uh, from the, the nuclear power the president has or the power of the president to make provocative statements that really matter here in the country about issues like race and immigration. If he will act this way, it's fair for people in both parties to ask the question, is is he a fit to, to hold the office? But the word show jumped in there about your fifth sentence, and it is a, a problematic word here, Julian, because as we know, we who have written about or reported on White Houses, so much of what happens coming from that building is show, there for effect, uh, crafted, manufactured even. Uh, You know, the, the complications of this man is that he has an enormous acuity for a single product, ratings. And part of what gets those ratings, even for people who hate him, those who love him, those who can't stand looking at him but can't take their eyes off him, is precisely how erratic he is. I would like to point out to both of you guys, though, that if you look at old tapes of Trump, President Trump, he was very coherent. He was able to put together not only sentences, but also thoughts, answer questions. He could carry on conversations. He was quite a good conversationalist, and that obviously is long gone. That 
also, though, raises the question with the way that we're talking here uh, that I'd like to throw to Julian, and that is, should we be talking about the 25th Amendment? And can you walk us through what the 25th Amendment was and why it's in place? Yeah, I mean, the the 25th Amendment was passed by Congress in 1965. It was ratified in 1967. It, It comes in the aftermath of John F. Kennedy's assassination, and it basically is setting up the processes for succession if a president dies or resigns or what happens if we don't have a vice president, how is a new vice president selected? But there's part of that amendment which also talks about the ability of uh, the vice president and cabinet with congressional approval to take action if the president is, quote, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. And the process is set into place. It's a pretty difficult process. Basically, uh, the vice president and a majority of the cabinet have to decide that the president can no longer function and fulfill the responsibilities of the job. They have to send a letter to Congress saying this, and the vice president becomes the acting president immediately. But then at that point, the president has the right to send a letter back to Congress saying, I can do the job, and I don't agree with this. Uh, And if that happens, the vice president and the cabinet again have to come to Congress with another letter. But that time you need two thirds approval of the House and the Senate, which is even more than you'll need to support impeachment. So it's a very high bar. And you're asking people who the president himself has nominated, a vice president who he has selected to make this statement. And the one last thing is there's a debate, did it mean physical impairment or did it also include his mental fitness, the president's mental fitness? I think there's a lot of agreement and it did include that. The idea for it initially came from Eisenhower because he had felt that he was in that position after his heart attack and after his earlier surgeries, that he was afraid being a military officer, he had seen other military officers, especially earlier in, in World War II and World War One. He had seen leaders who were not aware that they were incompetent and they were leading their men into dangerous situations. So he knew when he went into surgery, for example, that he needed to have some arrangement to have somebody take over. And he recognized that sometimes a leader didn't know when they needed that. Absolutely. I mean, it, 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 that that is an origins moment uh, for the need for dealing with this. That's exactly how this came about. And obviously the other, the memory also, uh, it, that, that people discussed is of Woodrow Wilson, who in his final year as a result of his stroke was incapacitated as well. Let's, let's just put a fine point in this, Julian. I mean, it's one thing to talk about a physical disability, something we could, I suppose, measure biologically, medically. It's another thing to, to get into what would it be, mud wrestling psychiatrists here? I mean, to, to assess his mental capacity. Uh, you know, I got my team and you got yours. That is incredibly difficult. Hell, for anybody. Absolutely. Oh, and my. <laughs> and we have, do have a long history, as some people have pointed out in the last few days, even with physical exams of physicians not really wanting to say much about problems that they discover. And, um, you know, we have a, a long history of, of hidden physical ailments. So it's really just hard to imagine how all this would unfold, although of all the presidents we've had, certainly in recent history, this is the one time you you can at least see how the discussion is arising. 
Well, I'm going to be a naysayer here because we also have a longstanding tradition in American politics that you don't comment on somebody's mental health unless you have examined them personally. And that's a rule that came out of Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign in the early 1960s when a group of psychiatrists looked at the sorts of things that Barry Goldwater was saying, like the fact he approved of the use of tactical nuclear devices in battlefields by by commanders on the field, and at the fact that he seemed so far outside the mainstream in politics and said, oh, you can't possibly think those things and be mentally competent, so therefore he must be crazy. And after that happened, and they published a book about that, the American Psychiatric Association got together and said, no, we really can't be diagnosing people unless we have examined them personally. And then later on, the American Medical Association said the same thing about physical ailments. And this is a longstanding idea that you can't sit here as an observer and say, oh, you can't vote for that guy because he's crazy. But I think that it brings up a real problem to essentially gag those of us who look at somebody like Donald Trump and say, listen, this guy is not within the mainstream. Barry Goldwater was maybe a little bit outside of where other people were in his politics, but he clearly was mentally competent. Donald Trump, on the other hand, seems to me to be in a stage at which it is fair for people to question his competency. The problem with what I see right now is that the GOP, both in Congress and in the cabinet, is simply unwilling to step up and and step up to the plate. You know, I mean, how can we get our arms around this issue? in a way um, that fits with the ferocious partisanship, and I won't even agree the sunrise in the east if you're my opponent, that affects American politics at this moment. Well, let's throw that to Julian, because this should have been an impeachment issue from the very beginning, but the Republican Congress isn't going to do that. So what do you see, Julian, as a way that we can deal with the fact that we apparently have a president who is problematic? Well, I want one thing I would just add before getting to what you can do. My own, you know, part of my response to some of the discussion that's emerging is it does mask some of the very intentional things that he's done, which are also part of his controversial history. So, so I do worry sometimes that all the discussion of mental fitness, for example, will overwhelm discussions of his willingness to, you know, traffic in racist or nativist kind of rhetoric or allow these kinds of groups into his coalition, which I don't think is simply a fitness issue. I I think it's very intentional. It has been since the campaign started. And it's important, I think, to distinguish the two and to keep discussing both parts of that. That's fair. This This Republican Congress isn't doing anything about the president in the near future. I think there is a constant speculation every time we hit one of these moments, whether it's the book or whether it's something he says it, that it's going to finally break that Republican partisan loyalty. And it just doesn't happen. And I think we're far away from them either being willing to move forward on something like impeachment or the 25th Amendment, which I'm sure President Trump would contest if all of a sudden, you know, Vice President Pence and the cabinet went along with this. I think the real issue is the midterms, and and I've talked a lot about that. I mean, that's going to be the only moment in the next few years through 2020 when I really see a serious moment of potential to put breaks or restraints or to change the political dynamics in Washington. 
Well, look, I, I just echo that uh, before we jump to a break is, is the idea that this midterm elections is a time when the public can weigh in really on the future of this president quite quite pointedly to say enough is enough or or we will uh, we will back off and not essentially uh, exercise judgment. But let's let's take a quick break. Uh, Heather Julian uh, will be back after a moment and we'll talk about Oprah in 2020. Okay, we're back. Uh, let's talk about the excitement this week over Oprah and her four-minute and 50-second speech, whatever it was, at the Sunday Golden Globes. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. And when that new day finally dawns, It will be because of a lot of magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, me too, again. Um, she is a extraordinary life story and a performer and somebody who has succeeded boldly in America and of course most importantly a celebrity and I think right now we are wrestling with the issues of celebrity in ways we, we I don't think ever have quite before you know look we did have Ronald Reagan he was an actor but he's also governor of California uh, we have had other celebrities who've been politically active, but we have now a president who really cut his mark and, uh, and uh, arrived in the American consciousness most fully as the star of a primetime, highly rated show, The Apprentice, uh, playing essentially a role crafted but seemingly surreal as the boss, as a guy who says you're fired, as essentially a... Uh, in command in a pantheon of celebrities, mostly lesser celebrities who he fired. And now he's the president. And right now there is no doubt, and we've heard echoes and murmurs all over the country of other celebrities saying, hey, wait a minute, my Q rating's much higher than this guy. And, you know, I've done things. Maybe I've created a business. Certainly I'm beloved, as is Tom Hanks, as is George Clooney. I imagine we'll get some folks from the right coming out, too, who are celebrated. And why not? I've got a relationship with the American public, deep and quite emotive, in fact, and emotions win. We may actually be in an era in which there are celebrities rising and grasping for power. And then, if they get it, we all have to sit around to decide whether this person can stand the acute pressures for a non-professional of that little room, that round room, which is as inhospitable a terrain as any in the world, including one that can cause enormous anxiety, stress, and even breakdown, especially to someone who doesn't have any clue how to run the U.S. government. Julian, are you with me on this? Have we crossed maybe into a new kind of uncharted terrain here? Yeah, I, I do think that that potential, it, you can't ignore it. Uh, it, this is this is the story of President Trump, who who I see more as a celebrity than a business person. 
in terms of, of how he was known and his appeal in the last decade. We've had celebrities, you know, Al Franken uh, started on SNL, George Murphy, who was a senator from California, was in, in, in musicals. Sonny so Bono. Right. Sonny Bono, Fred Grandy, who was gopher on the love boat, uh, was in the house. So there's there's examples of this. But I do think there is a feeling that a new precedent has been set. Trump, unlike Reagan, you know, didn't have a background in in politics and nor does he really even seem to have much of an interest in governance now that he's in office. And, and yet he's the president. I think there's probably some sentiment that only someone comfortable in the world of the media and celebrity is, is going to be able to take on a Donald Trump in a campaign. But I do think now it's not a frivolous thing to say we're going to have more celebrities in the political arena. I would say that Donald Trump did it, but he still aligned his celebrity status with some pretty strong partisan forces in the Republican Party. It wasn't an accident that he started his campaign going after immigrants and uh, anti-immigration has been a big issue in a in a powerful part of the Republican Party. And so I do think a celebrity can't just go from television, get on TV, say I'm running and win. They will have to align with a substantial partisan interest in whatever party they pick or or get a really uh, uh, able uh, and sharp edge committee around them to tell them what they ought to think. I mean, you know, you look at Donald Trump's positions 10 years ago, they had nothing in common with what he was spouting as president. In fact, as a candidate, he was saying a whole bunch of different things at the beginning of his campaign as at the end. I think part of what is so fascinating about his rise is how nimble he was in just saying, well, no, I guess not that anymore. This is what I believe. You know, I think back uh, in 1976, during the Democratic primaries, Jimmy Carter famously understood that after reforms that were put into place in the primary system, that the media, television in particular, was going to be as important as the party bosses in determining who won. You had to appeal to reporters, not to machine politicians who controlled uh, different parts of the districts and the electorate. And I think you know, Donald Trump did have uh, a similar realization about how the party machines were broken nationally and how at a national level, the media was as important as anything else to winning lots of support. And so I think when Oprah makes a speech as powerful as the one she did, and, and she herself has a very serious history beyond being a television star, she is a, also a very successful business person, huge appeal at the local level, I think there's uh, people who take a serious look that, that maybe there's something there to an Oprah candidacy. And who better to take on Donald Trump than someone who is as equally comfortable uh, when those television cameras go on? Well, you know, I'm going to be a naysayer again here, because if you think about this historically, this whole period, Julian, which you and I do all the time, what we're really seeing, it seems to me, is a long period that has been almost the rise of the media president. And it actually starts with Eisenhower, really, because Eisenhower, of course, had huge media appeal himself in the 1950s. But, but you know, if you, you saw the man from Abilene, you see the, the first political ad, the man from Abilene. The man from Abilene, out of the heartland of America, out of this small frame house in Abilene, Kansas, came a man like D. Eisenhower. That tape of that docu, that little mini doc of Eisenhower, I mean, you could have done it in high school, but it's the start 
Let's create a product. They are creating a product. And after that, if you think about it, think about presidents who are lining up actors and especially musicians. Remember when James Brown signed on with Nixon in 1972? Mr. Brown, why are you endorsing President Nixon? Well, I'm endorsing President Nixon because, because I believe in the future of the country lies with uh, uh, Mr. Nixon. And I feel that, uh, that uh, some of the things he's done has been very close to my heart as a minority, as a black man. And Reagan <laughs> trying to co-opt Born in the USA, you know, and Bruce Springsteen yeah, and Bruce having said, to come no out. Way. No way. That's right. And, and Ted Nugent becoming such a big deal in the Trump campaign. And you have people trying to line up celebrities to bring their audiences with them to that candidate. But Trump is the first one to be a candidate himself. Until then, you've got people who are big in some fields deciding to become politicians, and they try themselves out in the Senate. Great example of that is Bill Bradley, who was, of course, the Hall of Famer from the Knicks, the New York Knicks. But who, also a Rhodes Scholar from Princeton. From Princeton. You know, he still holds the Ivy League scoring record. Really? Yeah, he does. But anyway, so they they try themselves out in the Senate and decide whether or not they are actually good at what they're doing. Him or John Glenn, the, the yeah, astronaut sure. who became a senator from Ohio, both in the 1970s, both Democrats. And the idea here was that you should go into the Senate, you should learn your learn the ropes, and then see if that's something you can trot out at a national level. We've never had someone before vault to the presidency with zero governing experience. And that's a really important thing that I think speaks to electing somebody like Oprah. I could see Al Franken because he came out of the Senate. But Oprah is a brilliant businesswoman. She has a great story. She's a phenomenal actress. She is a powerful, emotional woman who commands a great following. But politics is a profession, and she is not a professional, no more than Donald Trump Should is. she run for president? Heather, yes or no? I think not. I think if she wants to go into the presidency, she should try for the Senate first. Julian? I would be with Heather until a year and a half ago. But there's part of me at this moment that says we should seriously consider a run by Oprah Winfrey, even without the political experience. I don't know if she can take the political heat that will come from uh, a Trump attack, which will be vicious. It will be underhand. It will be unlike anything she's ever encountered. Uh, but well, Julian, this, she's a black woman. She's encountered this everything. This is news, but, Julian. Hold on, let's just get this right. Headline: Julian Zelzer, professor from Princeton, leading the Oprah Winfrey uh, search I'm committee. Not, is not, this? Uh, see, I see the argument for it. I, and again, you, any candidate who pops up now and, and people say they should run, you always have to say, well, well, let's look a little more at, at who they are, their record, and and what kinds of issues. But I, I think there's a case to be made that, that she should be part of the mix. I do. And again, I probably wouldn't have said that a couple of years ago, but we are in a different world in 2018 than we were in 2016. Uh, and I think, I, I think the rules look a lot different. And the kind of political campaign that will be necessary to take him on will be very different than the ones uh, people traditionally look for. So, so I think it, it's a plausible... It's a plausible argument to make. Uh, new rules, Julian. I'm with you on that one, buddy. Uh, we are in a new time, and you bet Oprah's got huge appeal. And here's the crazy part. People feel like they know her. I've lived with her for years. I've watched her. She's a presence in my life. It's like she's a neighbor. I think she's doing well. She's looking good. She's talking strong. And, of course, her backstory is extraordinary. Her mother's a maid. She grew up in Mississippi. Of course, she even suffered sexual abuse as a child. Here you've got an abuser-in-chief in the White House and someone who's been on the receiving end. I mean, Oprah's story 
is an American story, and and in a way, that's all you seem to need these days. But 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 politics is a profession. Running this government takes actual knowledge and skills. She is a brilliant woman. I I'm a huge Oprah fan. Hey, listen, I've read the Oprah books, right, all of them. But but no, we need to take this country have back. You really for read, actual... Have you really read the Oprah books? Yes, yes, I did. You're just not the Oprah reader. I'm just I looking lo- at you now. <laughs> I'm just thinking out loud here. Sorry, you, you, she had, she had a great eye, but 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 <laughs> politics is about this country, and it's about democracy, and it's about knowing it's about knowing what the committee of the Ways and Means does, Julian, and what the committee of finance shouldn't does. Shouldn't famous celebrities be represented in this democracy as well, Julian? I ask you. I think there's two different issues. The, the first question was: <laughs> Is it plausible that she could be a candidate? And to think of her as a candidate, if you are a Democrat seeking a candidate who can defeat. Donald Trump. And I think there is a very, very plausible argument to make that you could think that way and she should be considered. Is it good to double down on celebrity in in politics? Uh, I, I'm sympathetic to a lot of what you're saying. Look, I've, I've written a lot of books and articles about politicians who've, who've done important things, who take governance seriously, who have some expertise in what politics is like as opposed to business or Hollywood. And it does matter. Uh, but in terms of the campaign, I, I think that's a that's a different it's a different issue. And even people such as myself, sometimes I'm sure are accused of being a little bit too nostalgic about politics, meaning we're not taking seriously the fundamental dysfunctions of of a lot of the political system right now, which creates more appetite and openness to people who are from outside that system. It's not simply we're seduced by celebrities. It's Washington has often failed and the system isn't always working. So it's harder to hold up that politician as being so much better than the business person or the celebrity. And I think that's a kind of fundamental part of of where we are today. Uh, Great summation, Julian. Hell, it's been good having you on the show. It's been a pleasure to be with you guys. Julian Zelzer, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton author pundit everywhere these days thank you for joining us julian thank you heather cox richardson historian extraordinaire always wonderful to chat it's always fun ron i'm ron suskind and this is freak out and carry on if you haven't already subscribe to us on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review it helps others find the show follow us on facebook and twitter at freak out carry on Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakout and carry on at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.